0: This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 95. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snny.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Meb Faber, host of the Meb Faber podcast and co-founder and the chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. Some of you may be familiar with Meb's very popular podcast, the Meb Faber podcast. I'm also a big fan of Meb and uh, thought it would be fun to invite him on the podcast to learn even more from him. In this interview, we cover a multitude of topics, including his books that he's written over the years, his investing strategy, trend following, and much more. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 95, and please enjoy my interview with Meb Faber. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. As some of you may know, when I'm not interviewing folks for the podcast, I also host CEO video interviews and Wall Street views with investing experts for SNN's YouTube channel, SNN Network. I wanted to take a moment to invite you all to subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel. As a subscriber, you'll be the first to be notified when we publish a new CEO video interview with microcap management teams, a new Wall Street View video interview with investing experts, panels and keynote presentations from our conferences, as well as new and archived podcast interviews. Go to www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click the subscribe button. Again, that's www.youtube.com backslash SNNWire and click subscribe. Thank you for subscribing and for your continued support. For this episode of the Planet Microcat podcast, I would like to welcome Meb Faber, host of the Meb Faber podcast, and the co-founder and the chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. Meb, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you on, man. Thank you for uh, taking the time out to do this. Yeah, no, no sweat. Cool. So uh, so let's start with your background. You know, How'd you get your start in the world of finance and investing? How far you want to go back? You, you want to go back to childhood? You Let's, want to go back to college? University. I was thinking. I was actually thinking as soon as your father caught you out of the womb, if possible. You know, um,
1: cool? it's it's an interesting analogy because you know I, I had I did have that relationship with both my parents where we talked about personal finance and investing. You know, they came from very different backgrounds. My my father grew up. You know dirt poor on a farm no running water uh, sort of outhouse um, which sounds crazy to think about but um, You know was kind of a self-made man and uh, my mother was was always interested in investing Uh, Her father had worked for one of history's greatest performing stocks Um, And so they kind of came at it from from two different perspectives and two very different perspectives, but um, you know, we grew up in a normal middle-class family in Colorado and a little bit of North Carolina anyway. Um, but, but I did have those discussions, not quite in the womb, but, um, <laughs> that was certainly the, for like many people, um, the way that you started to learn about the world of, of finance and investing. And in some of those lessons in retrospect, um, you know, being in, as a professional now, we're probably not, the best way to be taught about investing. Um, Anyway, uh, you know, I I, uh, followed the footsteps of most of the males in my family, was an engineer in university, uh, studied actually biotech engineering, started out as uh, a biotech uh, equity analyst while taking a year off before going back to grad school. Uh, That was the plan, ended up taking grad school at night anyway was in Gaithersburg, Maryland. So I was taking grad school at Hopkins while working for a biotech mutual fund. So kind of marrying my my two interests of of both biotech and uh, investing. And this would have been in the spring, no, excuse me, this would have been in the fall of 2000. So um, pretty interesting timing to be starting a investment job a little bit not only did you have the investing uh, bubble market cap sort of tech.com bubble bursting but also the biotech you know that was that was a a lot of news flow going on then with the human genome sequencing and everything else Uh, anyway so I kind of got it from both sides but long-winded answer to saying kind of that one year um sojourn of of working before going back to grad school became two two became three and it's been a bit of a divergence where my career became my hobby and and vice versa but but yeah I think that the seeds were certainly sown. We have an old uh I found an old postcard years after my father passed that i'd written to him from some camp. Uh, where we were, I was talking about stock ideas, which sounds kind of crazy. And then we actually looked up the returns of those stocks many years later. And I think my entire career would have been better just by buying those and going away and and never, uh, never, (laughs) never doing anything else in my career. Um, But uh, that's, that's the short, uh, the short history.
0: Well, thankful for us, you didn't do that. But I'm also equally very sorry for you. uh, In that sense. I mean, look, uh, I think it was, I think it was Anheuser Busch.
1: What was the other one? Um, Disney was the big one, I think,
0: and another Aww. one that got acquired. I'll have to look it up. Mm-hmm. See if I can find them for you. Nice. And so, when you went when you went to school to to get your degree in biotech engineering, by the way, you're you're actually not the first person I've interviewed who started off went to school for biotech engineering and then never spent a day in a lab afterwards you know I actually went right to doing equity uh, analysis i mean did you always kind of know like all right i'm getting this degree I, this is what interests me i i need to specialize in something so that i can get a better analyst job i mean what was the thought process
1: no i actually i was fully planning on being on the biotech side i think it uh um had a, it had its own way of of fate Selecting me out because I was always terrible at the lab. I would <laughs> always joke I'd spill viruses everywhere. I'd come in, and, you know, my despite being a quant now, my attention to detail in a lab was probably not what it should be. So uh, I I don't think I had a choice. I think I think I was uh, spit out the other side with uh, no uh, no choice in the matter.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, what what led you to starting? Uh, Cambria Investment Management. It, it sounds like there's there's some gap years there between working as an analyst at another firm and then and then starting up your own shop.
1: Yeah, I, I'd worked in San Francisco and Lake Tahoe as a quant for a startup commodity trading advisor. Didn't really go anywhere. I, I like to say more that I was a ski bum than anything. Um, and then had moved down to Los Angeles to start the company with my partner. This would have been 06. Uh, we started Manage Money in 07. Really had no idea what we wanted to be when we grew up, you know knew we had some ideas on investing. He had come from a venture capital corporate legal sort of transactional background uh had had done a lot of financing for companies but but more what you'd view as a traditional v c or banking side, not investment advisor and I had come from the research side, never having worked um, building a investment advisor or hedge fund or whatnot so uh, we didn't really know, and you know we started out with some private funds and uh, separate accounts and kind of grew from there.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what came first? And and we'll get more in depth on the on your white paper a little bit later in the interview. But what came first, the white paper that you wrote uh, titled "A Quantitative Approach to Tactical Tactical Asset Allocation," or the the fund? You know, did did the fund allow you the time to write this up, or how, what was the time frame there?
1: We we had pu- we had completed a bunch of the research internally and had no intention of ever publishing or writing anything ever. And the, uh, way fate again would have it was that I was trying to avoid taking a level three test. Uh, this was for the CMT kind of the technical version of the CFA, uh, or redheaded stepchild cousin, I guess. Um, it, and so I really didn't want to take the test cause I, I thought a lot of the, Material was garbage, and so they used to have a requirement you could write a paper, but they announced that they were doing away with that requirement. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I wanted to do was take the test and memorize a bunch of stuff I thought was um, a, a bit like sorcery. And so I turned in an abstract at the last minute, and then said, you know, if I'm going to write this paper, I may as well submit it to some journals. Uh, you know, go to this, all this effort of putting this together, I may as well as may as well publish it. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up getting it published in the journal Wealth Management. And, um, we, we had, I'm not sure exactly which had come first as far as the publication versus the funds launching, but the research had been done in house for some time already. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of long done, but the actual putting pen to paper was, um, oddly enough, just, just to
0: avoid taking a test. By the way, how old were you at the time when you started the fund? We were in late twenties, somewhere, nice. somewhere in there. That's awesome. That's so cool. I mean, were you scared at all? I mean, you know, late 20s, starting up your own shop, you got to go out and raise funds. I mean, you know, that must have been a little frightening.
1: I mean, too dumb to be scared, really. (laughs) You know, like what's the, I mean, I remember when I joined Eric to take the job, I said um, I'd actually turned down a much better job, much higher paying job in in Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Um, And my my entire family thought I was very foolish. But I said, look, what's the, the downside is I live at the beach for a year or two. I'd never been to the beach. Really, lived. Um, I actually thought LA was a fairly terrible place before moving there. Um, <laughs> now I love it. But it, it said, you know, I worst case scenario is, um, you know, I work for a year or two, doesn't go anywhere, and I go on to do something else. So, didn't really feel that sort of, um, uh, you know, responsibility. Didn't have uh, a partner. Didn't have any children. Didn't have any pets. You know, not a whole lot of. Uh, things I needed to answer to other, other than just myself. Mm
0: -hmm. So then the, my next question is, is because on the Cambria website, you describe the firm as a, as quants, quote unquote, you know, before we get into the process itself, you know, did you bring in that strategy or did you, when you partnered up with Eric, be like, all right, let's kind of do a combo of what I know best, what you know best, and that'll be it. You know, how, how did you decide on what the firm strategy was going to be?
1: You know, it's like many things evolves over time, but mm-hmm. the genesis of the firm and the paper and everything else was a trend following type strategy and, you know, trend following. And I'd say the other pillar that we use for most of our strategies is of course value. And these are strategies that have been around for a hundred years. So it's not like something we've invented uh, or is massively proprietary. Certainly we put our own spin and story around it, but uh, a lot of the strategies that we've implemented have, have been around for certainly decades, if not over 100 years. And so, um, you know, we run, we manage over 11 funds now, uh, soon to be another one next week. But the uh, the whole um, origin was trend following, which had been developed over the years. I mean, the, the, the uh, reason I became a quant was the discretionary subjective side of the business is, um, of course, very hard, but also you, you learn quickly. Um, I have and still have, you know, all the behavioral biases. And so um, I made all the mistakes, certainly in my 20s, that people would make being overconfident and trading too much and taking on too much risk. I could tell about 20 more. But, you know, that's what eventually pushed me to my style, which is wanting to be rules based. And, you know, everyone's got their own style. It's not the way Buffett does it. And it's not the way that stevie cohen does it or anyone else but you know that's the kind of the whole point is eventually you find something that works for you and if we know anything about investing is there's a million ways to to make money and and plenty that are that are just fine but most important finding the uh, the one that really resonates dude
0: listen if there's only one way to to invest and make money this would i think i'd only have one episode of my podcast and i only think you'd have one too uh so I'm, i'm very thankful for that uh so let's get into to your the your trend following strategy. Tell us a little bit more about your investing thesis and how it works.
1: So, you know, the, the concept of the original paper and we um just wrote a 10-year retrospective for the Journal of Wealth Management. Um this was, you know, before the financial crisis and so um had again trend following has been around forever certainly uh, since the time of Charles Dow, but really implemented since the 70s and 80s by the famous turtles and commodity trading advisors and a gazillion other people. And, you know, the, the common understanding of trend following, I thought, was not uh, well described or accurate. And so a lot of people just immediately put the label of market timing on top of mm. uh, this strategy. And that's accurate. But in my opinion, everything is active. Whether you do market cap weighted indexing or something else, every decision in investing is, is an active decision. And so, you know, we said, look, here's a very simple rule. Um, it's not optimized. We'll apply it to every asset class that we track. Here's how it's done historically. And the, and the main takeaway was that it wasn't that it was a magical, I'm going to sell at the top and buy at the bottom and double my returns and, uh, you know, move, move to the Caribbean and drink piña coladas. It was more of a, Uh, risk reduction, volatility reducing kind of strategy that would hopefully keep you out of the really big bad bear markets. So not the zero to 20, but really the the 40, 60, 80 plus bear markets. And that's historically what the simulation showed. Now, of course, the reason the paper became so popular was was the financial crisis happened uh, within a year or two after publication. So it looked brilliant. Of course, if I had published it in 2009 or 10, nobody would have read it because they would have said, that's obvious, you idiot, you're using hindsight bias. But I was very obvious. I was very honest about that in the retrospective, said, look, you know, that there's um, for as brilliant as people would probably say we looked in 08 or 09, a strategy like trend following probably has looked the opposite in the years since. Um, And almost every investing strategy has its own challenges. And trend following the big one is, is looking different. Uh, and, and, typically when markets are going sideways or doing reversals, mm-hmm. um, this concept of, of using the trend may or may not be, uh, useful.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so you say that you currently are managing over 11 funds, another one coming out next week, you know, so do you have different data points for each one of these funds? And if so, you know, what, what are some of those data points that you look for? So that signals, uh, and, and I also, I guess to clear this up too, is it, uh, is the fund itself a, a basket of, of, of individual companies, or is it an ETF? You know how 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 does how do you actually then deploy it into some of these different asset classes?
1: So let me talk about. There's about four criteria that we think are really important okay. uh, before we launch a fund, and the first being is it has to be something that doesn't exist, or we think we can do a lot better or a lot cheaper. Uh, Because otherwise, if we're just going to do another fund that's just going to clone Vanguard or iShares or someone else, what's the point? You know, there's well over 10,000 public funds through mutual funds and ETFs. Do we really need any more? And so we're only launching funds that we think don't exist or we think that, um, again, we can do much better or cheaper. Cheaper is getting more and more rare these days. Mm. You know, I think uh, uh, the race to zero and expense ratio is a fantastic development for the end investor. But... Um, But there's still some cases where that that's happening. And so um, that that's the first criteria. Second is that there has to be some fair amount of academic and or practitioner research that supports the concept. Uh, A lot of these ideas that come out, you know, it's just the issuers trying to throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. You know, they'll launch 100 funds with the hopes that a few of them get really big. And, you know, the actual strategy can be totally nonsensical. And they're okay with that because it's like a venture capital model. Uh, I don't really want to do that sort of business. I don't think it's, uh, as a fiduciary, the right thing to do. Um, Third, it has to be something that I want to invest in. I want to put my own money into. And it's a surprise to people. uh, But the vast majority of mutual fund managers have zero dollars invested in their own fund, uh, which is a really strange takeaway. You think, why would this portfolio manager be selling me uh, or trying to convince me on TV to buy his fund when he actually doesn't invest in it. And that's just the sad reality that a lot of these people just don't have any skin in the game. And I invest all my public assets in uh, in our funds exclusively, so 100%. Um, but that's, to me, the whole point. You know, Why would we launch something unless I wanted to put some money into it? And then lastly, of course, it has to be something that people actually want. So there's strategies that we've developed that I think are brilliant, but I don't think anyone on the planet would actually invest in them. Um, so it has to be a bit of a, a viable business too. Otherwise, uh, you're just you know, entertaining yourself. So that kind of gives you a pretty broad uh, framework for how to think about putting funds out there. That having been said, you know, the lineup then goes from everything to uh, super broad asset allocation funds all the way down to extremely niche funds focusing on one demographic or, or target idea uh, and then everything in between, so some are, are more like Legos uh mm-hmm. that help you build part of the overall portfolio and some theoretically could be one fund your entire portfolio uh it 's a bit uh it 's a bit of choose your own adventure on on which one works for uh the end investor and I think as of last month there 's over thirty five thousand investors across all the funds, so mm-hmm. you got all all types represented nice.
0: I, and I have to ask, I mean, we are, this is a micro cap podcast. I mean, do you, do you have a fund uh, specifically for small micro nano cap stocks?
1: Um, some of ours uh, tilt small or mid cap They they tend to be size agnostic. Meaning if they're finding opportunity in the small cap arena, mm-hmm. they could be hundred percent small cap. So we have a shareholder yield suite uh, that focuses on value stocks that are companies that are distributing cash flows through buybacks and dividends. And uh, those tend to be high quality companies that that are cheap. In the US, that skews larger, uh, mid cap to larger. Uh, abroad, it skews uh, quite a bit smaller. Doesn't get into the micro cap. Um, one of the challenges with being a fund manager is, you know, and it's particularly in the ETF space, you need to have capacity. And we certainly don't have this problem, but theoretically, if, if the funds started to get to, or 50 billion and micro caps are, are a little harder. Uh, but I'm open ideas. That might be some, <laughs> uh, something we'd be interested in
0: in, uh, in the future. Gotcha. So I have to ask, I mean, why did you make the choice to really focus on this quant strategy? Then, you know, I, I've had a number of fund managers on here, asset managers that are, you know, more on the qualitative side, you know, uh, maybe more concentrated portfolios, individual stocks, you know, wh- why did you decide to go that route versus that? Um sorry, so which route between Between uh being being a quant and uh more on the qualitative side. You know,
1: I think it's two sides of the same coin. I mean, if you were to ask Buffett, you would clearly characterize him as a qualitative, discretionary investor, but you know, I guarantee you that you could probably write down his rules and come up with a pretty darn similar um framework. And actually AQR has done that. You know, they published a paper called Buffett's Alpha where they just decomposed him into a formula, and it does a fantastic job of picking value-quality stocks. You know, the big key there, in my opinion, is that his approach isn't actually that proprietary or complicated. You know, his his alpha is really, he sticks to it through thick and thin. Mm. Um, So for me, it's just a lot easier. You know, I, I think discretionary investing, there's certainly value to be had, I think you can do a lot of value add and certainly the smaller or weirder uh, or unfollowed areas of the world you go, the more uh, possibility there is to really add serious value. You know, Charlie Munger said this. Somebody asked him for advice recently and he's like, you know, you, you should go where the fish are. Um, if you're fishing in the, the, large cap pools, what are you, the 75th analyst that's going to have a interesting take on Apple or, <laughs> you know, are you looking into Nigerian small caps and have, um, some, some real insight there that, that is useful and different. So, you know, for me, the discretionary stuff, it's possible and it's fun, but it's hella hard work. And, uh, you know, I, I prefer, um, the rules based from some of the reasons I mentioned earlier is that I have a lot of the behavioral issues that muck people up in their investing process. And I think it's a lot, um, easier and, and simpler for me to put in it into a automated framework or construct that, uh, allows me to, to let the computer do all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm.
0: That's pretty interesting. Cause I feel very similar in that sense, you know, where, especially if I'm you know you're looking at a micro cap or small cap maybe you have four or five stocks in your portfolio and you you know so much but I've also been very susceptible to almost every bias you know so what's interesting is that you went this route because you really noticed that you were just you were always susceptible to these things coming up whenever you saw new news or good bad indifferent you know i mean is that that sounds like it was really the case
1: yeah, I mean, and the best thing you can do as a young person is lose all your money doing the the dumb stuff <laughs> while you don't yep. while you don't have much. Um, it's a, it's it becomes life changing if you don't learn those lessons and do them when you're older and and have a lot of responsibilities. But you know, different people learn different lessons, and it's really hard to try to convey uh, a lot of these lessons without going through it. I mean, the the very real pain of losing money. If you haven't been through it, you know, and you sit down with a millennial, uh, write on down on paper, say, look, this is what stocks have done historically. At some point, you'll, you'll probably lose a third. Um, if you're hundred percent invested in stocks, you know, once every decade or two or three, you may lose 50%, but, but your big worst case is you will actually lose, you know, in the great depression, you lose 80% and people can kind of grasp that, but then, You know, once you look at your bank account or look at your portfolio and then you lose your job and hey, you have these car payments and house payments and you have this vacation coming up and your spouse is in your ear about, um, you know, hey, we need we should join this private school, you know, all these life, you know, events that start creeping in Mm -hmm. and that portfolio goes from, you know, a certain number I don't know, let's call it a million dollars if you're blessed and one of the uh, wealthy people in the world down to 800,000, down to 600,000, down to 400,000. You know, that, that is a something that people, uh, can logically or rationally try to respond to on paper ahead of time. But then once you go through it, it's a totally, it's a very real physical, visceral reaction. And so some of these things, it's just, it's hard to convey without experiencing it. Um, so our advice is always to make the dumb mistakes when you're really young.
0: For sure. I mean, what's, that That was part of the reason I started this, this podcast too, is that, uh, you know, my thesis has always been as uh micro caps and uh, have always been a nice place where you can, you know, really learn, learn the trade a little bit. And if you do lose, hopefully you're not, you're not investing too much. And uh, and you kind of pay your college tuition that way, or you're trading tuition, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, my next question then is, be you know, really between your books, white papers, and podcasts, uh, your insights are, are really not only thought-provoking and interesting, but there's just there's so much out there. Um, and, and with that said, you know, I, uh, we could probably spend one podcast on each bit of. Uh, from your, each book, each, each uh, white paper, but we'll try and condense it here, you know, and and I wanted to start off with your first book, uh, Global Asset Allocation. You know, what, what was your thesis with this book?
1: So this is fun book and it's free. If you guys go to com, or you can add a link in the show notes, Uh, it's free to download mainly because I have a a large rivalry with Amazon currently. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, so I just made the books free so you can get a pack of all three of three of our self-published books, three or four. I can't even remember. i going
0: to have to ask Any- about that after actually. Don't yeah. So <laughs> anyway,
1: they, um, so we had this thesis where you have all these people on TV, all these famous investors, gurus, people that are legit. I mean, that manage hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, it's some of the most respected institutions in the world have at some point, Espoused publicly through an interview, a white paper, a book, uh, a suggested asset allocation for investors, and so everyone from Robert not at Research Affiliates to Dave Swinson, who runs the Yale Endowment, to Muhammad al aryan who runs uh, now, a, a, he just joined a new endowment, I think in in the UK. I can't remember. Anyway, I used to run Harvard and PIMCO with Bill Gross. All these guys, at some point. Um, I say guys because they're mostly guys, have have stated publicly, here's a recommended allocation. And these allocations are hugely different. So there's some people that say you need to put 25% in gold. Some say zero. Some say 90% in stocks. Some say only a quarter. So these massively different allocations. And I said, let's let's do a study where we look at these allocations and how they've done historically over time um, and kind of tease out what, what we can learn about these these totally different what we call lazy portfolios you know they're buy and hold you you rebalance them once a year or whenever Um, but but pretty basic allocations and there were some pretty profound takeaways and I don't know really anyone else that agrees with me on the takeaways so take this as as you may Um, the first being is that you know you live in a world of, of infinite choice so it's not just the three main categories were stocks bonds and real assets but you can decompose that into emerging market stocks or treasury bonds and corporate bonds or REITs and commodities and everything in between. So we included about, I think it was about 13 asset classes in the book and took it back to 1972. I think in the, the new update, we'll take it back to the 1920s. But we demonstrated that a couple things. One, that almost, that excuse me, every asset class did a great job of uh, preserving and increasing wealth over the ensuing, uh, what is that, 50 years. 40 years maybe when we published published the book um, they all moved up into the right so you got paid to own them which is great um, you know and they kind of zigged and zagged the 1970s were a really tough time for investors because of the high inflation but in general uh, they, they all did a pretty good job some were less volatile some were more volatile uh, but but at the end of the day they all they all did well the the big surprising takeaway from the book was that um, of all the portfolios in the book, I mean, I think if you include the appendix, there's probably 20, they clustered, if you exclude the permanent portfolio, and that's an old Harry Brown portfolio that has about half in cash and bonds, uh, all of these strategies cluster within one percentage point return of each other over the entire period. So all this work, all this effort that people put into asset allocation, and all the time that everyone spends, how much I have in stocks, what's the Fed doing, what about gold, it's breaking out, how is inflation going to affect real estate? Is the Fed uh, interest rates coming down, which I do with my bonds? What about negative yielding? What about Trump? What about Zika? All these things, right? That all day, uh, what about employment? Um, That that goes on with the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, um, really didn't have an impact over the asset allocation over the entire period. Uh, You know, and, and one of the reasons that it seems like they would have a hugely different return despite only being one percentage point over the full period was that the average between the best and the worst in any given year was 18 percentage points. So in the short term, you have this massive just noise of these things bouncing all around, but over the long term, they, they have a way of, of balancing out. And so then we, we then extended this a step further just to impress upon what we thought was the big takeaway here. And we said, all right, you know, you go back to 1970, I'll give you a crystal ball. I'll say, I will let you invest in the single best asset allocation in this book. And um, that's a pretty monster time machine. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, Vanguard or Barclays would probably pay $100 billion for that opportunity to see what's the best asset allocation. And the answer was it was Mohamed El-Aryan portfolio, which is not surprising because that's a very endowment style heavy in equities portfolio and stocks did exceptionally well uh, throughout the 80s and 90s bull market and at times, um, uh, other times since. And uh, I said, however, my caveat is you need to implement this portfolio with the average mutual fund of today, 2019, Mm -hmm. at (coughs) 1.25%, excuse me, Um, you know, not the average cost in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Index funds didn't really exist uh, in the early part of the decade. And forget about how much the average funds cost and implementation and commissions and everything else, you know, and and just by implementing with the average mutual fund, you would take the the performance of the best performing portfolio and make it almost as bad as the worst, which was permanent portfolio. And even then, that's not quite fair because permanent was the only one of the few portfolios that had consistent real returns in every decade. So it was just lower volatility. But the point being is that you you convert the best performing allocation to, to almost as bad as the worst just by implementing it through normal fees of a mutual fund today now if you then say i I don't trust myself i need a financial advisor i buy at the top i sell at the bottom over and over again average financial advisor of today is one percent per year well that takes your return of the best performing asset allocation and makes it far worse than the worst (coughs) so if you think about that for a second you know we live in a in a period today it's awesome. There's never been a better time in history to be an investor. Any investor out there right now who wants to invest in a global portfolio of ETFs can do can build any of these portfolios for essentially free. I think the total cost is 0.05%, five hundredths of one percent. And If you include short lending on that portfolio, which is something that not a lot of people understand well, but it's something that... Um, would then actually take the expense ratio of that fund and make it actually negative. So you're getting paid to own this portfolio. You know, that's a far cry from the the nineties, eighties, seventies expenses. So it's essentially investing is free. Well, in a world where investing is free for buy and hold asset allocation, why would anyone pay more? And that's a great question. Um, They shouldn't. And and on top of that, (laughs) if you have an account at Vanguard or Robinhood, you can trade all those ETFs for free on commissions as well. And on top of that, ETFs are fairly tax-efficient, so you're not going to be paying any taxes on them, except for the dividends and income. You can't get around that.
0: Right.
1: Unless you're in retirement. So anyway, this is a very long-winded answer of saying...
0: Hey, hey there's a lot of substance to this book. Please, I'm not stopping.
1: Yeah, and you guys can read it in like 20 minutes. Um, and so <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting takeaway, but but we, we've been recently giving some talks to the CFA societies around the country, and, and uh, the Charter Financial Analysts, you know, these are... Um, the the people that go through a very miserable uh three-year process uh that's very rigorous and hard uh to to become a financial analyst And i said look you know the old hairs the gray hairs in the room uh this isn't going to matter as much as it is to the young people young people in the room you have to prepare yourself in a world where buy and hold asset allocation is free and I say, that means it's a commodity. Definition of commodity is something that, you know, is, is interchangeable, that there's really no value to be producing it. And I say, you can go right now and, and invest in some of these funds and some of these robo-advisors uh, for essentially no cost. And so imagine what does that mean in a world where that's reality. And we have a fund that, that is a very low-cost asset allocation fund. And the thing is, is that the vast majority of asset allocation low cost funds in the ETFs, it's like five billion. Um, but the high cost buy and hold mutual funds, which are less tax efficient, they're still well over a trillion. So, you know, the media is, is all over this, this topic of, Hey, a lot of flows are going in ETFs from mutual funds and yada, yada. Well, you know, my argument is that it's not even in the early innings. It's not even batting practice yet. And people once they realize – and the caveat of this is this is buy and hold strategic. Like this isn't, um, you know, people that are trying to add value. This is by definition they're not doing anything. Um, you know, I, th- <laughs> yeah. I think the world is is ill-prepared for that with the industry of the 150-plus industries in the U.S. The one with, if not the highest, one of the highest profit margins is, is asset management. And you ring up old Jeff Bezos, who who will say, you know, your profit margin is my opportunity. This is something that I think the the asset management industry is is very poorly uh, prepared for.
0: So let's say you had to write a volume two for this book, you know what 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 would what would that be?
1: First would be um, I'll take it back to the 1920s, uh, just so for some longer perspective. And obviously a lot of the asset classes didn't exist that long, so you'd have to simulate some of them. Um, but I think that's instructive. Two is that, you know, I think the, the next extension is, okay, well, are there then other strategies or tactical or tilts or other things I can do to improve upon that? And I, I think there is. I think there's actually really easy things to do to improve upon these market cap weighted global portfolios. Because if, if you were to go out, the base case is the, is the global market portfolio. If you went out and just bought the world, and that's one of the portfolios in the book. Um, you bought every public security in the world, stocks and bonds and everything else. You end know, up with a portfolio that's about half stocks and bonds, and of that, it's about half U.S. and half foreign. Um, and so, you know, is there ways to improve upon that? And I, and I think absolutely. So, you know, the people professionals that listen to me give the spiel are usually kind of depressed after the first
0: part. You know, <laughs> is it
1: what what's what am, what am I doing showing up to work every day? And I said, well, look, that's just the base case. That's the asset allocation for. Why doubles. did I
0: spend, why did I spend three years getting my CFA? Like, damn yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> entire careers, you know? And so yeah. I said, I said, well,
1: it's uh, the good news is I actually think it's, it's fairly, um, fairly simple to improve upon that base case portfolio.
0: Gotcha. All right. So I'm going to do a quick transition to book two. Cause I have a feeling that if we kept talking about book one, we're going to be here all day, but which isn't, the worst thing in the world, but uh, I, I think we we eventually need to eat. But in, in your in your in the other book, I wanted to talk about uh, global value. You discuss how to spot bubbles, avoid market crashes, and and earn big returns in the stock, or how to spot bubbles, avoid market crashes, and earn big returns in the stock market. So then, is it is it really possible for investors to identify emerging bubbles and then profit from their inflation?
1: Yeah. So let's let's take the time machine back to the seventies, where we were again with with Mcfly and Biff and everyone else and <laughs> you know there there was a gravitation- a neutron bomb that went off in the nineteen seventies in the asset management world, and most people think it was the invention of the index, and what what people will usually mean when they say passive or index, John Bogle and Wells Fargo and others when they developed it. It meant what's called market cap weighting and market cap weighting is simply you invest in uh, Let's say the US stock market you invest the most in the biggest stocks all the way down to invest the least in the smallest ones and so you know the biggest today would be you have a few trillion dollar companies or thereabouts Microsoft Amazon Apple and What surprises most people? Um, even professionals in this world is, is you ask people, you say, you know, well, well, how does that actually weight them? And people say, it's the biggest companies and you say, yes, biggest by what measures? And they say, well, you know, sales or earnings or revenue and no, none of those are true. It's simply the price of the stock times shares outstanding, which does give you the market. But if you are an alien or someone looking at it as an investing strategy, is a really nonsensical investing strategy it doesn't make any sense to just invest in no other part of anyone's life would you invest most money in just the things that are the biggest um and so as a strategy it's fine i mean it's it's a naive trend following strategy and you're guaranteed to own the winners you're also guaranteed to own the losers and over time that's capitalism and it gives you a pretty good return stream but as an optimal one it doesn't make a whole lot of sense And the main reason it doesn't make sense is because there's no tether to fundamentals or value whatsoever. So, um, as a stock price increases, it gets a bigger and bigger weight. Well, usually when a stock price is increasing also means it's probably getting more and more expensive. And that actually turns out to be the case. Uh, There's a great Ned Davis study and research affiliates has, has replicated this too, where if you simply invest in the largest stock in the stock market when it was the largest, you actually is a horrible investing strategy. So this over time would have been famous GE and Cisco and, uh, Apple, uh, you underperform the market by about three percentage points per year that extrapolates to every sector that extrapolates to every country. And if you think about it, very simple investing strategy, just avoid the largest stock in every stock market. But, um, you know, a a reason why that makes sense is, is simply capitalism. Where, you know, by the time you get to be a trillion dollar company, pretty darn well be sure that some other young 20 something in Brazil or Italy or Australia uh, would love to build a trillion dollar company, too. So you have this creative destruction and these these big companies have um, bullseyes on their backs. And if you look at historically per decade. You don't see the same names really keeping those ranks, you know standard oil doesn't exist anymore, etc So, um, what we say is that if you're more thoughtful about building an investing strategy, almost any investing strategy Will outperform market cap weighting you could do equal weighting you could do weighting stocks by letter of the alphabet You could do whether you're wearing the ceo wears shorts a dress or pants um, because all those break the market cap weighted link. And so our favorite, because it just makes the most sense to me, would be to use value. And I don't even think it even matters what sort of value you use. So uh, in the book, we demonstrated this with countries that our are, are favorite long-term value metric is 10-year price-to-earnings ratio, uh, which gives you a long-term perspective. And historically for countries, that's around 17 Um, but it can, the U S has been as low as five and it's been as high as 45 in the internet bubble when I was graduating college in December, 1999. And it's pretty predictive of what happens in the future over the next 10 years, not the next quarter, but the next 10 years, the returns are fairly predictive from the starting point of valuation. And it also applies to foreign countries. And you see even bigger examples of booms and busts in foreign countries, Um, The biggest granddaddy of them all for us was Japan in the late late 1980s for the older people listening to this. uh, Hit a P ratio of almost 100. It was the biggest stock market in the world at that time. And it's still one of the biggest economies in the world. I think it's number three right now. Mm -hmm. And um, so the problem with market cap weighting on a country level is if you went back and market cap weighted this portfolio, you would have put most of your money in Japan in the 1980s when it was the most expensive country bubble we've ever seen in our lifetime. Does that make any sense? Like that doesn't even check a common sense box. Like why anyone would ever do that. And so not surprisingly, if you weight uh, countries by equal weight or GDP weight or our favorite value weight, so you just buy the cheapest ones and avoid the most expensive, you outperform in some quite substantially over time. And part of that is because you're investing in the cheapest. Part of it is also because you're avoiding the most expensive Uh, which is really dumb stuff. Um, In the mid-2000s, everyone was marketing India and China and the BRICS, and everyone was excited about those countries, but they got into the P ratios in the 40s and 60s, and no wonder they had terrible returns since. And one of the problems with a strategy like this is you end up looking quite different. So right now, that means you'd be investing in countries like Russia or Brazil or Greece or half of Europe. And for a lot of people, that's... um, that presents a career risk or a look too different risk that uh is is really hard. And this year it's not too much of a risk because you know, I think Greece is up like forty percent and Russia's up thirty, but rewind four or five years ago, and I guarantee you the listeners would have a very different response to <laughs> me me saying those names. Long winded answer to saying is that, you know, the the point of this book is that if you don't have a fundamental anchor or you don't have some sort of uh, guidepost or instrument to, to give you perspective, then you're just flying, flying blind. And, and you know, you wouldn't know that buying a country at 50 P.E. ratio is a horrible idea because you wouldn't be looking for it. And the good news is, right, most of the world right now um, is fairly reasonably priced. So foreign stocks are around P.E. around 20, 21, 22 Emerging markets are down around fifteen. The cheapest buckets down around twelve. Uh, the bad news is the u s is up around thirty one mm. and again, it's not a bubble. it's not terrible. It just means it's probably going to have muted returns. But again, going back to the market cap discussion, you're also putting half in the u s if you're a market cap weighted investor. If you're someone who's American listening to this, you actually put eighty percent in the United States. And that's called a home country bias. It's a really, really dumb thing to do, uh, but it's it's a uh, situation that that happens over and over again everywhere around the world. So I think that the sensible way, again, about having a plan and having an automated process is that it'll keep you from from investing in the really expensive stuff and keep you uh, hopefully allocated more towards the stuffs a little cheaper.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it just it gives you it gives you a. a, a... Uh, I guess really, like you said, it gives you a place where you have something that you can latch on to. You know, you have your set of rules and processes in place. You know, you're not just saying, uh, oh my gosh, look at all this news and information that's going on over here. I need to just go blindly take a position or or take some action over here. You know, all right, my numbers are telling me this. I'm going to go do this. Right. So, now i I wanted to then now get get into some of your white papers on the website you know and and, and the one that stood out to me was the uh the investment pyramid. Um, how would you say that this has changed over the years
1: well you know it's it's funny because so much of what I talk about on Twitter, white papers, podcasts, books is is to me like the final ten percent mm-hmm. or the final five percent. You know it matters and it's absolutely worth doing. But there are what we consider to be major muscle movements that are vastly more important that you have to have as a foundation. And so the example we used in this, in this paper, younger people will not remember this, but the older ones will, is that there used to be a USDA uh, food recommendation pyramid that they would, guidelines they put out for Americans and how many calories they should eat and, and what should constitute most of it. And like the number one thing they suggested people eat was like bread and pasta and cereal. Um, which today, you know, I wouldn't say it's universally accepted, but it's fairly well accepted that, uh, you know, getting majority of your calories from sugar and carbs is, is probably not an ideal diet. So, uh, this is a very complicated, um, topic that, that people go crazy about, but you know, the, the formula is actually fairly simple. It's calories in versus calorie burned and you can get much more, um, Technical about it, but that's really the main the main formula. And I guarantee you, if you only consume 500 calories a day and uh, go run 10 miles, you're probably going to lose a lot of weight. And vice versa, if you consume 10,000 calories a day and watch uh, reruns of The Simpsons, you're probably going to gain weight. Um, but th- this concept was that, you know, science they say it advances one funeral at a time. And same thing with investing, where the beliefs of the 70s or 80s, you know, they they evolve and you learn things and. Hey, my parents uh, both used to smoke, you know, and no one smokes anymore, almost. Uh, they vape, maybe, but, but don't smoke <laughs> cigarettes, because uh, you learn that that was probably a really dumb thing to do. So uh, the same thing with investing is, is as the evidence piles up, as you learn things, um, you know, it's the same sort of concept where, hey, maybe uh, the way that we may have been doing it is, is not the right way, or maybe there's better ways to do it. I think uh, the internet is a great disinfectant on, uh, you know, shining a light onto practices that existed, you know, in decades past that, you know, are are downright illegal now. I mean, the the quote from Wolf of Wall Street where McConaughey is talking to to Leo and he says something along the lines of, you know, the name of the game is uh, taking money from your client's pocket and putting it into your pocket. And that's the way a lot of wall street has been built you know in the in the sort of transactional brokerage business and even today i mean you can find a and p 500 mutual fund uh that exists that charges over two percent and they're not even pretending to be doing anything they're just literally buying the s&p 500 index which you can get for i think two basis points or something now um so you know i, I think uh hopefully a lot of the um there's possibility that that People are, uh, you know, the the industry is moving forward in a positive way. Um, sometimes I get a little despondent and think that, you know, it's a hopeless task because we don't arm most of our citizenry with a, a reasonable education in personal finance or investing. And so, going back to the beginning of the base of the pyramid, you know, people ask me about investing. I say, look, let's talk about something else first. I mean, what you invest in is is swamped, absolutely swamped by your decision on how much you save and when you start investing. So you start saving a fair amount of money. You start investing early. You know, the, the best time was 20 years ago. The next best time is today. That's vastly more important than whether you get a 10 or 11% return. Right. You know, and so I think, um, for most people just, that's the hard part too, though. Uh, everyone loves spending money. You know, they, they, Saving it is, is having some empathy with your future self and it and it's hard, uh, it's hard for people to learn that lesson, which is one of the things I'm you know pretty positive on the whole fire movement, you know I love to see that that uh, the focus away from consumption and more more on savings, um, but uh, I at the same time it's it's frustrating too.
0: hmm Yeah, and I noticed in there too that you also said that you know your your investment pyramid is also very personalized, just like the food pyramid you know, it, it's something that you really have to personalize for yourself if you want this to work for you, you know, not everything's going to work for, for, uh, for multiple people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing is like my mom, I love talking about her as an example. She's like a, a buy and hold stocks person, you know, and then she puts a big chunk in CDs and she's happy. She sleeps at night. Other people, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a automated sort of person, where I, I want it all in automation. I don't want to have to think about it. I want, you know, the the retirement accounts to get contributed, in the, and I want it all to work in the background. Someone else can say, you know what, Meb, I, I invest a quarter in gold and a third in real estate and twenty percent in stock. You know what? And, and that's fine. The, the problem is that people run into is thinking they have a plan. And listeners, you can be honest about this. And I already know the answer, but we consistently ask people. You know, do you have a written investing plan? And no one ever does. I mean, no one. And so it doesn't have to be complicated. You could write it down in four or five bullet points. But the whole point is not having one causes emotions to creep in. And when emotions creep in, you know, everything sort of fractures. And so uh, a good example, again, would be, you know, weight loss and exercise. Uh, if you have a plan and your spouse or partner or parent or child or neighbor is keeping you honest, it's it's a lot Harder to deviate than if you don't have a plan because you wake up and you're hungry and you go get a scoop of ice cream or a sandwich in the middle of the night You know, so same thing with investing is you don't have a plan and you get sucked into geopolitical news Of the negativity and almost always it's it ends up being uh, Something that that works adversely against you,
0: right? So then now I have to ask and this is my favorite question you know, what, what investing experience would you say has shaped your current investing thesis?
1: All of them. You know, it, uh, <laughs> there's, there's – um, let me give you a good example. And I'm very transparent about what I invest in and how I invest. You can find some old articles on the blog that detail very specifically what I do with my own money. Um, you know, money is a very taboo subject, which is a little odd. Uh, you know, talking to people. If you were to go up to someone tonight at dinner, or happy hour, and say, "Oh, how much money do you have?" You know, or what? How exactly do you invest your money? They would be very taken aback and and think you're probably a, a jerk. Um, but really, you know, money shouldn't be that taboo of a subject. And so, you know, I, I invest in a way that I'm pretty sure no one else in the world does. Where, um, you know, with the caveat being that probably most of my net worth is invested in my own company. And, um, you know, the, as far as the, the public investments, I put almost all of it into just one fund. And again, no one else would do that because that's crazy to them. They don't feel diversified, but that fund owns a number of other funds. And between those, they own probably 20,000 plus securities around the world. Uh, so that works for me and it's easy. You know, I just see one line item on my, on my, um, statement and, and the real thesis is that you know, we've talked a little bit about buy and hold investing, and I think buy and hold is a totally reasonable way to invest. I think the problem is buy and hold for most investors is that when it hits bad times, those bad times are correlated with bad times also in the economy and in people's personal lives. So think back to 08, your portfolio goes down 20, 30, 50 percent, but also you're in a recession People are losing their jobs, unemployment is spiking, and the political, geopolitical news is terrible. So it all happens at once. And that's traditionally the problem with buy and hold. Um, and you don't do anything. All you do is rebalance, and so you feel somewhat helpless. And on the flip side, we mentioned trend following, which has its own challenges, which are largely you look different, you may underperform when everything else is doing great. You know, Traditionally, the long bear markets are not a problem because it, it usually will exit or go short depending on your strategy. And so I've kind of cobbled together for me personally, we've published papers on this called the Trinity Portfolio, where I say I want to put half in each. And that way, it's sort of a yin-yang where I, I don't ever feel too exposed to one strategy or the other. And this last year is a great example. Q4 last year, uh, most markets, I mean, it was hitting the fan. I mean, They had terrible performance in, in the end of 2018. And so I was, man, I'm glad I have some trend following exposure because that's reduced my Exposure to what these markets are doing, and I'm glad I don't have all my money in buy and hold. Well, look what happened in 2019—the exact mirror image, opposite of 2018 Q1. I said, "Man, I'm glad I have some buy and hold because otherwise I'd have no returns." <laughs> so, um, but that's what works for me, you know. And so I think it's—I uh, think it's important for people to really find out what a, what a reasonable approach is for them, you know. And the biggest advice you can give there is to, to look back in history and try to understand how. Um, these sort of things would behave because I think expectations are a big problem. You know, most of the studies right now say that people, uh, expect over a 10% return for their investing portfolios where in the U S we live in a world where U S stocks we think are going to be due about 3% and U S bonds about 2% going forward. You know, that's a far cry from 10. Mm -hmm. You can't add those two together. You can't multiply them together and get 10. Um, so it's, uh, you know, the expectations versus reality, I think, is a big problem. So anyway, I mean, I think they all shape it. And mm-hmm. the challenge, I think, is as you go forward, an investor is to not let them just be like scars that uh, you, you continually chase what's hot. And that's what pe- that's probably the biggest mistake people make uh, is they just chase whatever is, is looks good today and, and usually that's a pretty, pretty, and that's, by the way, this isn't me talking down to individuals, professionals do this as well. Tons of academic studies show that they're equally as bad at chasing, uh, the hot hand and, and in historically it's been a, a, a big headwind to, uh, success.
0: So Meb, for those who may not, or, or that let, let's say they're in their young twenties cause there's, look, there's a lot of guys, people in my, in my business school classes where, you know, we, they, it, we talk about it in our finance class where, you know, we talk about the Buffett record, Munger record and buy and hold and the buy and hold strategy, you know? So what would you say to those people that, you know, may be aware that these strategies work, but just are are still working through the discipline of trying to get there?
1: I, I think the first advice is just get involved, you know, start, to put some money to work. And I think I love the automated platforms like Betterment. I mean, we offer one, but I think it's a wonderful user interface for young people. I mean you could certainly just open up a Vanguard brokerage account and start allocating to things. Um if you're very serious about long term compounding or just making investments that you can forget about, I mean the best advice you give to people is you buy something and you just never sell it. You know, the or buy a target date fund. Um and and one of the hacks it's not really a hack but i think it's a useful framework is if you tell people to frame it not as investing because that gives it some like in my opinion it gives it a little bit of like a, a gambling speculative uh feeling towards it but you just frame it as savings you know say i'm going to save and put my money into uh these vanguard etfs hopefully they're Cambria etfs but maybe they're vanguard ones or target day funds whatever maybe just start to put it to work And I think as you look at these tables that demonstrate, um, investment returns and how they compound over five, 10, 20, 40, 60 years. I mean, if you put it into one of these funds and, uh, the younger people on here that do have 50 years, it's, it's has the opportunity to a hundred X, not a hundred percent returns, a hundred X, meaning 10,000 is a million bucks. So you sock away $10,000, the young, uh, young 20 something and everyone's gonna live to 140 for, for that demo, <laughs> but 20 something by the time you're at 60, uh, or 70, maybe, uh, you're gonna have a million bucks and that's, you know, not guaranteed of course, but that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, but, but the problem is you don't start until you're 30 or 40 cause you went to Cancun or, um, you know, had that sports car uh you know I, I think it's it's time is is by far everyone's biggest um uh biggest positive that they can add to the repertoire
0: mm-hmm. and Meb, before i let you go you know you you have uh, this podcast the Meb favorite podcast you know wh- why did you start that and and uh and put that out there
1: you don't have to let me go. We can stay here all day. I'd, I'd, I'd uh, love to, man. Let's keep going. So you know the pod. So we've been putting out content for seems like forever. I mean, it started with the white paper you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And we started writing a blog, which has like two thousand posts. We don't blog as much anymore. Uh, I don't know a dozen white papers, five books, and I, I'm not there to pretend to tell people how to consume content. I mean, look, I'm an old school physical book guy. It's like ninety percent of my audience reads ebooks, uh, which I think is crazy but uh but I'm not here to tell people what to do so you know we were one of the early podcasts not the the original first round but kind of the second round, and certainly before um it's been this amazing uh you know explosion of of content It's wonderful I subscribed i think over fifty at this mm-hmm. point it's a problem um But, you know, I said, look, uh, we had been wanting to do a video instructional video series. Mm -hmm. The problem with videos, I mean, I think one of the biggest opportunities out there, I wish someone would do it, would be to do a sort of Rosetta Stone for investing instructional um, coursework. So people could could start to learn about investing in in one place. I don't want to do it because it's too much work. But listeners, feel free to take the idea. Um, You know, I said a video coursework and, but I said, you know what, so people are these new podcasts, maybe people like that. And I did a poll and it was like 90% wanted podcasts. And that kind of set off a light bulb in my head. And, you know, back then it just seemed like so much work. But once you got the equipment and set up, it's really not that bad. And then just started recording them. And it's been so much fun. Uh, I love chatting with people and gives me an excuse to just ring someone and say, you want to ch- chat on the on the phone, on the Skype, on the mic, local, What you know, it, and it's, uh, you learn a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, there's been plenty of podcasts where you just sit back and, and soak it in. So, it's been a lot of fun. You know, people consume them, walking the dog, going to the gym, commuting, mm-hmm. uh, and you can kind of, um, I actually just invested in a podcast company or a fund, it's almost like a new asset class, that invests in young startup uh, podcasts. And they do, I don't do it, they do it, but uh, that's what a cool idea. But I'm very bullish on the podcasting space. It's little known, but it's like five times the revenue in China uh, because they monetize it in a different way. But I think, it's, I think it's in the early days, and it's got a lot of legs.
0: For sure. Well, dude, with that, uh, Meb, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Cambria Investment Management, and your podcast?
1: All right, so you can watch me pick fights on Twitter at Meb Faber. You can, <laughs> uh, you can see the blog and podcast at, um, it's just mebfaber.com. And then my day job, which is managing all the Cambria funds and investment accounts, is both cambriafunds.com and Cambriainvestments.com.
0: Meb, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining with me today. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Meb, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast. And also you can search on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official MicroCap news source, and the MicroCap Review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet MicroCap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.